The Contenders is a proud member of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For other great shows about movies and pop culture, go visit cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. I don't believe this. You guys throw me at the wolves, and now you want me to go back out there? Forget it. I am the ultimate badass. Yes, I These people are here to protect you. They're soldiers. It won't make any difference. Multiple signals! They're closing! I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. Get away from her, you bitch! Welcome to The Contenders, the show about the movies made by and starring women who refuse to play by the rules. I am Tobin Addington. And I'm Island Addington. And today we have a very special guest with us. He's a director, producer, editor for Crash Course. He edits the Dear Hank and John podcasts and hosts a show of his own called Real Bad about bad movies and why they want to hurt us, which I'm lucky enough to be on once in a while. Uh, he's also the latest member of the Cage Club Podcast Network family. Uh, so I'm super excited to introduce an all-around great guy and one of my favorite people to talk movies with. It's Mr. Nick Jenkins. Hi, Nick. Hello. How is everybody doing on this fine evening? Doing great. I'm good. I'm really good. I'm really excited to talk to you about this movie because this is a movie that you love. I love this movie. <laughs> I, I I forget how much I love the movie until I'm watching it. And I just love the movie so much while I'm watching it that I had to text you while I was watching <laughs> yes. it to tell you how much I love the movie. I was texting Tobin also while I was watching it. <laughs> However, I think my um, energy was coming from a different place. <laughs> well, okay, we'll talk yeah. about it. We'll work through it. We'll get there. We'll just work. We'll be fine. Uh, you know, I have to say one other thing before we get into the movie, uh, which is that, Nick, you are in some ways responsible for us having this podcast. If I can tangent a little bit, Isla and I had a, had an idea, like, I don't know, like a year ago? We had a great had idea. A great... I was so excited about our idea. <laughs> a great idea to do a podcast about infamous film disasters and, and <laughs> how to fix them. And we'd had plans for it. We had a name picked out. We had the guest lists all sort of, and you were like at the top of the list. I was like, we have to get Nick on this podcast because you was just going to be, it was going to be a perfect fit. And then before I even got a chance to write that email, you emailed me saying, Hey, you want to come be on my podcast about really bad movies and how to fix them? <laughs> I was like, Oh yes, but I was just going to ask you the same thing. Poached. But okay. So here's the thing. I think it all worked out for the better because now you you just don't know what it's like to have a podcast where you only talk about bad movies. <laughs> I'm, I get so overly excited. I was on the Snark Squad podcast where I got to talk about Near Dark, which is one of my very favorite films. It's a great episode of that podcast. Thank you very much. It was yeah, a lot of great. fun. But I was mostly I was just so overly excited because I was talking about a good movie. I was just so, <laughs> so excited. And that's another reason I'm so excited to be talking about aliens is like, oh, I get to talk about something that's not terrible <laughs> it's so true it's so true and anyway that sort of and then Island came out to, to to visit and we actually came in and sat in on one of the episodes and then I was like oh, partly it's because like this is really fun Island. I think you'll you will love Nick and you will love the conversation that we have with these people and also oh my god they're they're doing our idea probably better than we could have done it so we, can, <laughs> we, we have to come up with a new idea and so we did and here we are with our and oh, so yeah. I, I agree I think it all worked out for the best and I love this idea. This is this is also an idea that if I'd heard about, I would have 
stolen from you as well. <laughs> um, Aislinn, what movie are we doing today? We are doing Aliens, the 1986 classic, um, which I just looked and has a ridiculously high Rotten Tomato score. <laughs> so I don't know how many reviews you've written, Nick, but you should stop. <laughs> all of them. I've written all of them. Mm-hmm. So, um, Nick, you have a, an affinity for this film. When did you first see it? My history with Alien, the Alien franchise goes way back. It was a, a film I saw very early on on television. My mother and father were both sci-fi nuts. So I kind of watched all sci-fi, good and bad. But Alien stuck with me. I remember being extraordinarily horrified by the chestburster scene in Alien as a little kid. And uh, but at the same time, my mother bought me an alien puzzle. So I had this this jigsaw puzzle with this giant alien on it and the crew, the, (laughs) the crew of the original Uh, movie on it. So it was like always a part of my life. And the chestburster scene uh, upset me so much as a kid that it took me a long time to watch aliens because I was, I was a little kid and I was terrified of, of that. I was always terrified of things like living inside me. That was always (laughs) something when I was a kid that just freaked me out. Like I learned about earwigs and stuff like that. And I just, I had issues with that when I was a kid. I still do. (laughs) As as you should. (laughs) Yeah. Generally not a good thing. Uh, and I sort of worked up the courage to do it one time because my family was really excited about it. And so I watched it and at age, I don't know, 10, I think Mm -hmm. I saw it and was immediately completely enraptured by this movie. I just fell head over heels in love with it. Uh, not, not for the necessarily the horror, but also for just the filmmaking and the uh, the way that the military was portrayed in it, which seemed different than most movies I had seen. I know that it was actually not that different now, but at the time I was I was not used to seeing ragtag military, and I just loved the pacing. I loved the music. Uh, I loved Sigourney Weaver. I I was just I just everything about this film just clicked on all levels for me. And then you know I sort of forgot about it when I went to film school. I sort of did that thing that you do in film school. You leave all of your your stuff that you feel like is trash now behind. And then I rediscovered it when I got out of film school. And I was like, you know what? Not only is this film really good, it's better than I remember because of like some of the techniques that are used mm-hmm. in here. And it's impressive because this is the second film that James Cameron made. And uh, a lot of the ideals relating around a strong female character are even more powerful to me now watching it than they were when I was a kid. So it's just really stayed with me. You mentioned the chest bursting scene from the first alien. Yeah. And that, so that's my only touchstone for it. Alien and and the reason I even know about it is because of the number of times I watch Spaceballs. <laughs> That's fair. And it was explained to me that that was a parody of Alien, but that was enough. That was grotesque in itself. And I will warn you that that is not the last time I will say the word grotesque during this podcast. <laughs> so I have nothing. I know a little bit about Aliens because one of a podcast that I really enjoy um, called I Was There Too. Yes. About um, folks who have had a small roles in significant films mm-hmm. um, did a live special with Newt, who's a oh. fourth grade teacher. Yeah. Rebecca Jordan. 
and uh, Vasquez, whose name I... Jeanette Goldstein. There you go. And then Rico Ross. The most fit man in the world. <laughs> so I've, I've heard about their experience on the film, and that's it until two nights ago <laughs> when I spent two hours, 34 minutes, <laughs> watching Aliens. How about you, Tobin? Where do you fit in this puzzle? A little bit kind of between you guys. I knew Alien, I sort of knew of the franchise, like from the playground when I was a kid. Like I hadn't seen any of the any of the movies by 1986 when this movie came out. But kids talked about it all the time. Like the chest bursting scene was a topic of conversation on the playground. And, and I was always kind of, you know, I was freaked out by that. I, I was I was sort of not wanting to go near it. So I also my first exposure to anything directly related is the is the scene in Spaceballs, which I saw a number of times before I ever saw Alien. Mm-hmm. And then I think it was high school. I finally thought, OK, I'm going to just sit down and do it. And I remember I watched the first Alien movie in our living room or, or like our, our down the downstairs uh, in a very well lit room in the middle of the day. And it scared the hell out of me in a good way. Like I loved it, but it was really scary. So I moved on to this one almost immediately and had a very similar experience of being kind of scared. But also since this is much more of a you know, militaristic film and I was more I was sort of more used to that. I didn't watch a whole lot of horror as a kid. I clicked into it a, a little bit more. And then a similar kind of thing to Nick's experience where I, I think maybe the second time I saw it was in film school uh, later, uh, later on enough in film school that I was then I just sort of marveled at the way he was able to move the camera. And the way I guess that's not true because I wrote a paper about it in college, which we'll get to later. Um, but then in film school to sort of understand what he was doing with the with the camera and with the, um, the production design and how he was able to take a franchise you know, take take a movie that that uh, and make a sequel that was so different and yet felt so organic to the first movie is uh is I think kind of an amazing thing. So that that was my so I I really really love this movie. That's sort of the bottom line. And uh, yeah, I I'm excited to hear Iceland to hear your your fresh <laughs> take on all this stuff. <laughs> um, so while you're already chatting, Tobe, um, could you give us your two bits film history? Because I, yeah, I, you know, yeah, let, so let me give, I got I've got sort of two bits in one. And Nick, tell me if I'm getting this wrong, because I think you might know this stuff better than I do. But the story that I remember hearing was that James Cameron, who had at this point made Terminator as his first film, g- goes into pitch a sequel to Aliens. And this now this is the way the story goes. He goes up to like a I don't know, like a whiteboard or chalkboard or whatever they had and writes the word alien and then adds an S and then draws two lines through it to make a dollar sign. And that was his that was his pitch for aliens. Now, I'm sure there was more to it than that. But that's a, do you, have you ever heard that story, Nick? I have never heard that story. Uh, <laughs> that I, tracks, though, for me. I mean, um, one, one of my first notes is that James Cameron is a bro. So that <laughs> um, the story that James Cameron tells is he went uh, on the strength of his Terminator script. So he hadn't actually made wow. Terminator yet. Mm-hmm. It was just on this. The basically the Terminator was being circulated as a spec script. Mm-hmm. And he got an appointment where he got a meeting with David Geiler and Walter Hill to talk about different projects with 20th Century Fox. And they weren't really into anything that he wanted to pitch them. And as he was getting up to walking out, one of them, I think it was David Geiler said, Oh, we do have this other thing, alien Two, 
And uh, Cameron said he had to remain very calm <laughs> at that moment because he didn't know he, he was like all the pinball stuff started going off in his head. And uh-huh. He was very excited and basically was like, well, that could be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and then this. So he delivered them a, uh, a just a little treatment of his idea and they accepted it and they were really excited about it. But they also he also got the job to write Rambo, two on the same day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And in doing that, he went to David Geiler and Walter Hill and was like, what should I do? And David Geiler was like, well, don't be an idiot. Do both. Right. And so he did both. And uh, in typical James Cameron fashion, basically mapped out the amount of waking hours he had in 30 (laughs) days to write both scripts and get everything done. So that was sort of how that came about. He just happened to be on the right. He happened to be on the same page with the producers giving them an idea that he that they were very receptive to. My second bit was that the way this story was told to me was that he had two typewriters set up in his you know, apartment or whatever, and would sort of bounce from one to the other, depending on what time of day it was supposed to be, which blows my mind. A lot of similarities between them, too. Yeah, right. Rambo 2 is heavily rewritten before it it went before cameras and then it was not rewritten by Cameron but they're both about people dealing with PTSD having to go back into a battlefield they did not want to go back into right and as we get to will they're both refighting Vietnam for the American populace which was my the, yep. my, my sort of big, <laughs> big college paper but uh, we'll get to that we'll get to that a little later on okay okay nerds. <laughs> um, let's talk about ladies so as always, we list out some um, significant female figures in front of and or behind the camera. And so first, hopefully, obviously, the lead actor in this film is Sigourney Weaver. (laughs) (laughs) I'll never get used to that. (laughs) And um, also to mention is producer Gail Ann Hurd, who, um, I'm sorry, I stepped on that. You want me to do it again? No, no, that's okay. We'll roll with this. Who also produced Terminator. I don't know if you're going to ding every time. Terminator, <laughs> Terminator 2. Good. <laughs> Armageddon, Dick, and most currently, The Walking Dead. I thought we should maybe put Dick on there because I think that's a movie we should do sometime soon. Totally. Yeah. I would love I would love to do Dick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Isaac, you seem to have some feelings about James Cameron. Do you want to unpack that a little bit for us? I, I, w- I would love to because I, it's important. I, w- I want to make a a disclosure early on. That while I definitely have some things to say about this film, (laughs) I am not entirely anti-James Cameron because The Abyss Director's Cut remains in my top five favorite movies of all time. So I I want people (laughs) to know that before I continue to speak on (laughs) this piece of art see now this is interesting (laughs) because the abyss the theatrical cut is on my top five films of all time but it cuts the heart out of the movie i totally disagree okay well that is another podcast that that is another (laughs) podcast but we i would love to argue about that with you i would love (laughs) to demonstrate why i'm right okay um so but now that we've gone this far yeah yeah why don't you tell people, particularly, you know, our mom who has not watched this movie. <laughs> right, right. Um, what is this movie about? Can you give us a quick plot? 57 years ago, Lieutenant Ellen Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver, was the sole survivor of an alien encounter on a deep space mining vessel. You can learn about that in the movie Alien. 
After returning to Earth, Ripley finds no one believes her story, and in fact, they want to send her back to the planet where the original alien was found, and where now a mining colony has gone, has gone dark. Reluctantly, Ripley joins a group of macho space marines, travels to the planet, finds only one survivor, this nine-year-old girl named Newt, as well as countless other aliens and an egg-laying alien queen. She also discovers that, once again, the paramilitary-industrial company bankrolling the whole operation has plans to bring the aliens back to Earth for research purposes. The space marines are decimated, and it's up to Ripley to save Newt, destroy the planet, and end the menace before corporate greed brings these apocalyptic creatures back to earth and if we choose to end the franchise here which we should then yes yeah well i choose to end it here (laughs) i I made no i did not agree to watch the third one (laughs) so we get to for today we are ending it here my friends yes 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 uh so that's uh that's aliens there Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would add uh, one caveat is that uh, Ellen Ripley in the entire franchise never sets foot on Earth. Oh, she's not on Earth. She's in like some kind of she's space gateway, station thing. Gate, gateway station. Oh, cool. All right, good. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, um, so, so Aslan, Yep, love to. Love to. Did you have a question or do you want me to just start? <laughs> I think you should just start because I think we've got, we got some things to get into. Yeah. So many. You mentioned the hearing in your plot summary. And so she's woken up after 57 years. And then immediately, the next thing we see um, after a dream she has is her in front of this tribunal of some kind. And as you say, they can't believe what happened. And she's telling them. So I have giant in my notes, believe women. Right. Damn it. Right. 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 So that's such mm-hmm. an illustration. That. Um, and then let them make their own choices. Because then she's Paul Reiser and his hair, which I think did some excellent acting in this film, may, you know, may, like makes her go back. And I, that that very much bothered me from a survivor centered approach, which is the one I choose to take. She should never. I mean, that's when the movie should have ended. I think she just said, no, I'm not going to do that. And then gone off to heal. So we can talk about that. But I just wanted to believe women to be out there. And then the next thing I have in my notes is soul patch Bill Paxton. I can't even. <laughs> Don't let's so. let's not start off by disparaging the mighty Hudson. <laughs> One of the greatest, most formative characters in my little bitty life. Wow. All right. And then I think I'm going to tap out. For <laughs> if there's no disparaging of Hudson, then I, I got to pull out a couple pages of my notebook. Um, so, so the hearing thing was one. And then the, the next thing was um, talking, you know, Bill Paxton oriented in that we meet the Marines that are here. And, and I understand it was made in 1986, but it takes place in the future. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yep. So there's this immediate military culture that's very gendered and hyper-masculine and rowdy and all of the things. And I can easily see someone saying, well, this is military culture. This is what it is. But if you're making a film about the future, why not reinvent what that means? Why not change the, the standards and the expectations? Can I say I think that they did? Okay. Because I think at the time this movie was made, the idea of women in combat roles was a complete no-go. So Sure, okay. I'll give you, I'll give you that part. Nick. Um I also I am not going to I'm not going to say that you're wrong because I think 
with science fiction, that is a big part of it, as I think is reinventing sort of what we know. So we can be surprised, right? On one level, knowing what I know, like that it was, it was clearly supposed to be a commentary on Vietnam. So reinventing it may have pulled it away. I don't know. I, I, it's, it's a thing to me where I just know that that was not his intent. His intent was not to really reinvent it. So that might answer your question. Okay. I think, can I say that too, that I think that one, I don't think that the movie would be served by a utopian vision of the military. And two, I think that what happens is that the military, the sort of bro culture, militaristic folks come in with all their gear and they get screwed. And what happens is she comes in and using, you know, sort of intuition and and then eventually picking up the gear that they had that still works. And, you know, she's able to sort of do what they can't, which is, I think, you know, on balance is disproving the idea that, you know, I think I think the the the, the um, uh, there, there's a version of this movie where the space Marines go in and blow up all the aliens and, you know, there's a big fight and they and they, you know, two people die. The rest of them all survive and they go off the island. And, you know, it's the unironic version of Starship Troopers. And Ugh. and this <laughs> and, and this and this is very much I think I think in the by the end the movie. Yeah, uh, I think it takes. Uh, I think it sort of undermines the efficacy of that of that kind of militaristic approach. I mean, the point. Okay. Yeah, I, I think the point that um, Tobin makes is is really salient in that the the whole point here was that this broy culture uh, that is so enamored with itself, just so overly proud of who it is and and proud of its um uh, of its uh giant guns well giant guns but also its privilege in a lot of respects that it doesn't think there's going to be any problems and then mm-hmm. when and you talk about um Ellen Ripley making decisions um and letting her make decisions if you follow her throughout the entire script she is always making the right decision Absolutely. No, and I have very little concern about Ripley. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, she was compelling from the minute we see her. And, and I completely agree that whether other people are following her or not, she's making informed decisions throughout. And I guess I'm not suggesting utopian military, but that was just my I mm-hmm. I felt like why sink into what we know and what we expect, why not do something different? Because Hudson can still be irritating and <laughs> braggadocious and and they could all be badasses and full of themselves, but in a different way. This is very interesting to me because you watched the uh, extended edition. I did. And in the extended edition, there is some god awful Hudson stuff. That was cut for the theatrical edition. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. There is this long monologue he goes on in the drop ship that. Yes, there is. is <laughs> it's stupid. It's annoying. And and I love Bill Paxton, but it's not particularly well acted. Hey, Ripley, don't worry. Me and my squad of ultimate badasses will protect you. <laughs> Check it out. Independently targeting particle beam failings. For I have a city with this puppy. Oh yes, and and also I mean absolutely rest in peace. Yes, 
right? Oh, I uh, respect, love, yeah, yeah. respect for a human. I do not love Bill Paxton. Oh, interesting. Okay. His performances pull me out of what he's doing. Interesting. Okay. And so the reason that he worked for me in Big Love was that I don't really, you know, I didn't need to like him. He wasn't likable or charming to me. The character wasn't. So it worked really well to have Bill Paxton in that role. But other times that I see him, I just, he doesn't, he just stands out to me. Sure. And that, that's totally understandable. But for me, like the character of Hudson, Chet from Weird Science and, and, (laughs) and, and Severin from Near Dark are like this triumvirate of amazing, hilarious, awesome performances from my childhood (laughs) um, that, that I still find endearing and fun. Well, then you're going to love our game later. <laughs> oh, good. Um, I want to circle back really quickly. I, I think I read the trauma, the, the scene where she's in front of the tribunal thing or the council, whatever it is for the company. I think I read that differently than you did. I mean, I agree that she should not be sent back. Like this is not a place that she should go and they should they should listen to her. And, not, and I think it's what's really I read this as they don't believe her like you're I. I I, but right. I think that that's the point. Like they should believe her. That is the point. It's a, the, yes. but, but, but it felt like you were saying that the movie was um, not on her side in that moment. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm, I, I'm not reading this as deep as y'all <laughs> because uh, I have, you know, I am not a cinema scholar in the same way. So I'm just looking at it saying, I understand that for the purpose of the movie and the, character needing to go back and the conflict and the and the eventual triumph like i i can i get that but just don't you ever when you're watching a movie think oh if this person made this choice then they would go on this way and then well, yeah, then the movie would but that's be over. not the, what movies do that's not what stories do that's that's we wouldn't have a lot of movies then <laughs> if people made the right choice right well, i mean no i'm not saying the movie should change I'm not, I'm not expressing myself well. Well, no, what it sounds like, and this, cause this is what I've, this is what I notice is like when that starts happening, it usually means you're not either not into or have checked out of the movie for whatever reason. Uh, and I remember seeing independence day when I was, uh, I don't know, 20 when that came out, I think. And I was just having a blast at independence day. I knew it was a big, dumb movie, but I was just having a good time. And then as I was walking out of the theater, somebody said, Oh, you could tell it was fake because the palm trees didn't get burned down. And I was like, (laughs) well, you clearly were not in the moment of that movie. And that's, and that's fine. I mean, the movie didn't, didn't wrap you up. Cause when I watch that scene, I'm just like, they have no reason to believe her. Uh, other than her word, like that's it. And I, and I wouldn't. And so I'm just in it going, Oh no, this is terrible. Oh no. Um, but if you're not immersed in it, then yeah, you'd be going, what the hell is wrong with you people? Like what, why, why, and why is she going back? Oh my God. Yes. I can say that 100% the entire two hours and 34 minutes, (laughs) I was very aware that I was watching a film. <laughs> well, we we just have such fundamental different experiences of this movie. I, I, and, and I just one more time, and then I will move on from it. But just even saying, I know we're talking about a movie and not real life, but that well, they they have no reason to believe her other than her word. He, he's not saying that's right. Her. Yeah, no, we're as we're all agreeing on that point. 
We're all agreeing on that point. I don't feel like y'all are with me. No, we are. If if only they had believed her, we would. They wouldn't have had to go through all this stuff, and they could have nuked the planet, and it would have all been over. Like I, the right thing to do at that moment is believe her. And the fact that they don't is what makes that scene to me so compelling. Because then it's like, oh God, don't put her in, the, in this position. Don't put yourself in this position. You are all going to potentially die because you're not listening to this woman. And you know what? At the time, you know uh, that's what. That, that I think what we are reacting to is that that happens so much in real life, and that absolutely. And what I'm saying is that it's what what I like about this movie is that this movie is acknowledging that, and then acknowledging that that is a giant fucking mistake on the part of the people who are making it. Okay, and I I think you're giving it too much credit. How? how? I don't understand how that's because nothing good comes of the fact that they don't believe her. Here, yes. let, let me let's agree. Just, agreed, agreed. But I I see it as well. We need to get her back to the planet in order for us to have this action movie. This is a movie that is going to take this character and put them in front of these people who are um, not doing the right thing by not believing her. And it's going motivated to, completely by money, by mo- completely by greed and not at all the human cost, not, not at all the sort of the potential sort of risk to everybody, the, the, even, even if it is just her and, and that that is a terrible, none, nothing in that moment makes us feel like, Oh, you know what? They might be right. Nobody thinks that in that, in that scene, the scene is designed to be like, Oh my God, you people are fucking idiots. Also, I think Aizen, because we've all, the, a large majority of the audience has come into the movie having seen the first one. And we know how terrible this creature is. And we know how if you do not trust Ripley, you will die. There's just no two ways about it. And and when they don't believe her, it is – which is why I think that that scene to me plays so much more powerfully because I am – they could have done this any million ways. You could have had her um, picked up off the ship at, by the Marines on their way back to the planet. And she's like, oh my god, we can't go back. And they're like, no, we're headed. You're with us now. We're headed out that way. Like they didn't have to have this scene, right? Like they didn't have to motivate it this way. And I think it's, I think whether or not they meant to, that's, that's how the scene is functioning in the film. I agree with you on that. I, but my, I think my favorite part of what you said is they didn't have to motivate it like this. I, that's what, that's what bothers but, me. Okay. Um, but, but, okay. No, no, I'm, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can't, we can't, and I may cut this out, but I want to know how, what, what could, what else would they have done? What would have been a better motivation for it? Because this this gets directly to her trauma. This is triggering her trauma, which is, yes, a terrible thing to do to a human being. But that does not mean it's not the right choice for the character. I'm thinking. <laughs> I can't come up with a I can't come up with a different script for you right I guess, now. I guess I guess what I'm saying is that your objection, I, I don't know quite exactly what your objection is to this because I, this was the scene I watched watching the movie. I thought Iceland's going to dig this because this is like pointing out the hypocrisy <laughs> of all these dudes sitting around not believing this woman. And then because of that, all this terrible shit happens. I guess I'm so far out of the movie that I'm just looking at. I guess I'm just that far out of the movie. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I just think it's a brilliant way to put us in the point of view of the survivor. That's something these kinds of movies, these 80s action sci-fi movies aren't in the habit of doing they're they're they don't usually take the trauma of the of the experience seriously and i and i think that um uh, knowingly or not the movie is kind of canny in the way it puts the uh this audience who's used to a more sort of macho space marine being the hero of the story putting him in the point of view of this character 
who is not who is not believed you know like that there's it it is creating some empathy with this character in a way that i think uh is again wittingly or unwittingly uh, um sort of not only good for the movie but also potentially good for the audience look i can see where this is going but i'm telling you that those things exist thank you officer ripley that will be all please you're not listening to me kane the crew member Kane, who went into that ship, said he saw thousands of eggs there. Thousands. Thank you. That will be all. God damn it! That's not all. Because if one of those things gets down here, then that will be all. Then all this, this bullshit that you think is so important, you can just kiss all that goodbye. Okay, so speaking of protocol, tell me something about the first movie. Because, well, I guess at that point they were figuring the creature out. So this is more of my, um, I have more complaints about the military. Because if you're going to a place where you know that the creature, whether you believe it's there or not, has acid blood, why on earth are your arms exposed uh, or any part of your body? But remember, they didn't believe her that that was a thing. But they were sending then. OK, OK, then why were they sending these Marines with all these guns and stuff? This is I mean, it just they were pre- they were prepared in other ways. Not for, not for the xenomorphs. They were just prepared to have a skirmish. Oh my God, they have a name. They do call them the xenomorph in this movie in in on the ship. Wow, my subtitles <laughs> did not include that. Listen, I think the the whole uh, if part of the point of the military is that the military is not equipped for this mission. And a 1987 action movie audience is going to expect the rough talking, you know, hyper masculine, all guns blazing military to just kick ass and take names. So when they get decimated, it's it's designed to really throw us. It's designed to throw the intended audience for this movie. The movie's playing with with genre expectations, with gender expectations at that moment in, in ways that you know, maybe they don't play as well or as surprising in 2018. And if you haven't seen a lot of these kinds of movies, it doesn't feel particularly radical. But I think it's a it's still a pretty smart move, and and uh, um, it it shows how the movie is aware of the audience that's going to be watching it, or that they suspect is going to be watching at the time, and is at least surprising them. If not, and I, and I think the effect is whether again whether intended or not, is to sort of nudge them to a broader understanding of you know sort of what's possible. Um, it, it, certainly, that's the way it worked. I think with other filmmakers, but I, I I think I think it's it's unfair to sort of discount what the what the movie's doing in that moment okay then there okay good then that's a good that's a good reason for it again i guess i'm thinking of it's the future they have been on different planets they have encountered how have we as humans gotten that far in our space exploration without protective measures to our body I, th- I think we have to assume that the other creatures they've encountered have not been as um, evolutionary. The, the, one of the things they make a point in the first movie is to talk about uh, there's a one of the synthetics, right? The the android in the first movie talks about this mm-hmm. um, alien creature being like perfect natural selection, like it's perfect evolution. It is built to do a thing and it, it is entirely like it does that thing no matter what. And it's just it's a survivor. It just it, at all costs. And I think that the idea is they've, that no other alien that they've encountered has been this deadly. Right, Nick? Isn't that the, the idea? Yes. And the synthetic in that one, who turns out to be the kind of the bad guy of the whole thing, is... Yeah, the whole thing is like he doesn't want he wants to t- he, he he's sort of on the mission to bring it back because this will revolutionize everything. 
Like this will revolutionize everything we do for military. It will revolutionize everything we do for space travel, everything, if we can just study it. So they've never seen anything like it before. Okay. Except for Ripley, who has and has come back and said, right. no, no let's not do that. Let's not do that. Um, can we talk about androids for a mm-hmm. second? Yeah. Okay. Um, do they look like humans because that makes us more, um, that makes them more accessible to us or because it was 1986 and they couldn't make a robot that looked good enough? Well, let's actually, let's talk about this for a second, because this is something that's really important to me. And that is world building. Okay. And I, I feel like the androids are part of this world building in that we don't learn a lot about them at all. Right. Except for their, their androids. And I love that. Hmm. I love a world built that does not explain every last goddamn detail. And it's one of the things that's making me exhausted by a lot of films now is that uh, Cloverfield, I'm looking at you, the Cloverfield paradox (laughs) that tries to explain every last mystery that could possibly exist. And in doing that, it just murders any sense of mystery or intrigue or anything. And I like that in this world, there would be no reason for anyone to have the Android explained to them. Like right. there, it's, it's an Android. Right. They all understand for yeah. sure. And it's, you know, it probably, you know, yeah. 1986. I don't know. They, they did a pretty bang up job in the Terminator and that was a lower, um, a lower budgeted film than this. So it's possible that, you know, uh, in the first one, it was supposed to be a surprise when it happened, right. when it's revealed that it's a, um, that it's an Android. But in this one, the thing right off the bat is is just like, okay, well, we've set the tone. The audience knows that the last android went bad. Right. And so now we're just waiting for Bishop to go bad. But the, the funny part about this is he's playing it straight the whole time. Well, and I think it also contributes to her struggle. Yeah. Right? Because she was betrayed mm-hmm. by yep. the android in the first one. So she comes she comes in pretty hot on on this poor, <laughs> I don't, I was going to say gentleman, but that's not um, appropriate. I, I wonder, and maybe it's, I'm, I'm trying to over world build, but I do wonder why there's only one. If we've got sophisticated, that sophisticated androids, why, why not bring some more? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. I, I had not thought about that before. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, you could probably do that. I'd imagine there's something to the human element there, but mm-hmm. who knows? I think that's the thing they over explain in the eventual sequels. Oh God, yeah, with Winona Ryder, Ugh. yeah, and then on on with like prequels and <laughs> and whatever they how whatever you call Prometheus and all that stuff. Like they, I think they they deal with that stuff a lot. Oh my, yeah. yeah. I feel like I've opened the door to a closet that just has nothing for me. Oh, there's nothing. Yeah, you know, believe me, if this movie does not do it for you, you should never step anywhere <laughs> near any movie that comes after this. For sure, no, for sure, no. Welcome the- to Iceland and the franchise that doesn't work for her. <laughs> This is fascinating to me because like I I think that there are two incredible films in this franchise and the rest is garbage. <laughs> it is absolute garbage that a couple of them were trying but they didn't succeed in any way and then the rest aren't even trying to be much of anything. Um speak so yeah like overworld building good lord the prometheus films mm-hmm. are just trying to sort of explain and not explain things at the same time. And it, it's just a disaster. So with this, I don't know, it's refreshing to me that just like, yeah, we have an Android on board. That's what we do. Do, do you want me to tell you something I liked? Yes. God, yes, please. <laughs> please do. I'm so sad. I'm looking so sad. 
Oh, don't be sad. I also, but it's not my responsibility how you feel. So. Uh, so they, in the version I watched, incredibly long drop scene. I have some Hudson comments. We'll skip for now. Android <laughs> questions were answered. And then, uh, and then we meet Newt. And so I have in my notes, surrogate child thing, dot, 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 good idea or no, which now I, I understand a little more that I watched the director's right. cut where we or the long cut, whatever, where you find out that um, Ripley had a daughter that she had left to go on this mining mission. Mm-hmm. And by the time she wakes up, her daughter has died of old age, basically. Right. Um, so, you know, there's not only does Ripley want to protect this last human that's here, but also there's that immediate mirroring of a life she could have had. Um, and so I, you know, then I... Yeah. For the character, ooh, is this, you know, is this going to work out for you? Is this not? I did ask for spoilers in my household, so I knew that both Newt and (laughs) Sigourney would make it. Um, But then I have starred Trauma in the Brain um, because I thought it was an excellent, when uh, Newt is sitting on the tables before we know her name and they're trying to ask her questions. Yeah, And she's completely shut down. Yeah. What's her name again? Rebecca. Now think, Rebecca. Concentrate. Just start at the beginning. Where are your parents? Now look, Rebecca, you have to try and help. Give it a rest, why don't you? Total brain lock. Physically, she's okay. Borderline malnutrition, but I don't think there's any permanent damage. Come on, we're wasting our time. And that's 100% what happens, right? Yeah. part of your brain that can logically think through things is gone for the moment. Mm -hmm. And um, it's like, as, as it's been explained to me in, in trainings, taking a a box, that's a puzzle, turning all the pieces upside down. Well, turning most of the pieces upside down and throwing them on the floor. Mm -hmm. And so then when people say when in, in some, well, whether this is military or law enforcement, whatever say, well, what happened? When did it happen? Right. Right. All those who own or why questions are impossible to answer. What is what does this puzzle look like? Which is the top corner? You know, when did when did the box get turned over? You don't know any of those answers, but there are ways to help and and distract and put things back together. And so even the simple thing of giving her the hot chocolate puts her, you know, back in her body because she's probably dissociating mm-hmm. and and then allows them to move forward with some information. Try this. It's a little hot chocolate. There you go. That good, huh? Uh Uh-oh. I made a clean spot here. Now I've done it. Guess I'll have to do the whole thing. Hard to believe there's a little girl under all this. And a pretty one, too. You don't talk much, do you? Oh, I don't know how you managed to stay alive. But you're one brave kid, Rebecca. What'd you say? Newt. My name's Newt. Nobody calls me Rebecca except my brother. Newt? I like that. I'm Ripley. It's nice to meet you. Um, and then I, I mean, I did really like Newt. I thought, what a fun 
contrast to the badass military to have this, you know, child who is, you know, calm at times. I mean, she screams and is concerned, but, you know, calm in the face of all that's going on sometimes mm-hmm. and has is has little bits of wisdom. Oh, yeah. And she's Based on her survival. I think she's resourceful. Um, she's like, she, she and Ripley are the two people I want with me on this mission. Yes, absolutely. Apart from everyone else. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I mean, I would, I would take Hicks. Yeah. Uh, But you know, yeah. If I had to, if if you said have three people. If you need a third. Right, right, right. Well, cause Hicks is not a bad person. Like (laughs) that's it. He's Uh, also another trauma in the, and like he couldn't function in the moment. Yeah. And I don't fault him for that. Right. It's very human of. Can, can I can I ask just I want to ask a question because I, I it seems to me like you're applauding the movie's treatment of Newt and her trauma and Hicks and his trauma. And I'm is that right? I'm not applauding Hicks. I was just. No, 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 no. The movie's treatment of it. The movie, ta- the movie taking it seriously. I don't know, because I don't I don't think in that I wouldn't put those together. I I. The movie movie is doing things in scenes. It's showing that Newt is uh, has suffered this trauma and that these guys standing around barking stuff at her is not getting through. And Mm -hmm. then she has the um, Sigourney tells him to back off and has more of a human connection with her and is able to sort of draw draw her out. And you, you, you I think you were saying that that feels true. Yeah, absolutely. So as as, you're right, I I agree with you then that as does Hicks hesitation and. It's inability to execute things in the moment. So what also feels true to me. So what not to rehash. Oh, my God. Fight. But it seems to me then that what the what Sigourney is doing, what Ripley is doing is that she is writing the wrong done to her. I agree. I'm just pissed off that the wrong was done. But what I'm saying is that if we take a look at this movie as a mo- if you look at this movie as a movie about trauma. And you have a character mm-hmm. who has suffered a tremendous trauma and gets shat upon, which then leads to all this other terrible stuff going on until the end of the movie shows us, look, this is how you deal with this. This is how this re- this is not a joke. This is not a like it feels to me like this is you, I, I, that one at least has to acknowledge that that's what the movie is sort of wrestling with, whether or not you like to watch it as it's happening. I, I do. I agree with you that that is what it's wrestling with. I think there are scenes like the couple that we just talked about that I, you know, one could show to demonstrate that that's what it's wrestling with and that there um, are consequences to mistreating people in this way. But the whole, what I, where I disagree and I wouldn't want to show the entire film as a, I don't know. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Trauma, whatever. Right. Is that I don't think to get through something you don't have to run up on it and face it. Totally. Right. So yes and no. Yes, I'm not. I'm not saying that this is a playbook for anything. Only that is. Only that is. That is taking it sort of humanely and seriously. I want to agree with you on some of this stuff too, because I think that something that has bothered me about James Cameron, and I'd love to get Nick's opinion on this, is that sometimes as a filmmaker, it feels like he wants to have it both ways. This. This I feel. Uh, I remember especially from Avatar too. These movies where you want to be w- both critical of what say the military is able to do and also sort of loving the hardware 
because there, there are mm. shots in this movie and things that where, where it feels like there's some glorying in the military, um, like the aesthetic and the equipment. And, and while at the same time, the movie is, is also trying to say, you know what, this stuff isn't sufficient. This stuff doesn't work. This is not the, the, the proper sort of response to any of this stuff. And that sometimes feels like it's at war with itself. Have you ever, ever noticed that, Nick? Nick? Or do you sort of lean one way or the other? Uh, no, he's, he, he is guilty of that, as are many of us, especially when we get into, um, you know, I, it's similar of, of another very thoughtful filmmaker is George Miller. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he does fall into that same trap that of the, you know, yeah, all of this stuff, our use of gas, our use of um, our, our use of fossil fuels and what we're doing to the planet is terrible. Yet he fetishizes right, exactly. those cars and and Cameron here fetishizes the, not in a not in a way like Michael Bay does. Right, right. But he's still and I'm not slagging on Michael Bay. I think Michael Bay visually has some very interesting things that he does, but it, it's it is there. He he is trying to say this isn't this isn't the thing that we need to be focused on. Obviously, Sigourney Weaver's character is right and we shouldn't be doing this. But at the same time, we are fetishizing the weapons. We're fetishizing. And there's a point at which there is an entire scene where Hicks is fetishizing a gun to Ripley. Yes. Like mm-hmm. that, that that is in it's a scene in the movie. Now, it's a it's a good scene because it does multiple things. It's not just doing that. It is also showing us something about Ripley, which is very good and and hard to write. But the idea that like she wants to learn things, she is, she wants to be prepared. And she is also like when he doesn't want to show her the grenade launcher, he's like, uh, she's like, why aren't you showing me the grenade launcher? Come on. Right. And she has an aptitude. Yes. Which, you know, I think that's it's revealed elsewhere, but also in that moment and then comes in quite handy. But she is also that is something that carries over from the first film that she Mm -hmm. is a she follows protocol. And that is Mm -hmm. and it's one of the things that starts all of the problems in the first film is the fact that uh, something has attached itself to one of the crew members faces. And she's like, we can't let him back in the ship. Mm -hmm. There's protocol we have to go through. And then she gets over overridden by um by ash the the synthetic and it's a, it's not only a source of uh character conflict but it's also the it's what starts the ball rolling of bad things is we're not following the protocol that we are supposed to be following um and that is very important to her and you see echoes of that throughout this film with her you mentioned the aliens attaching themselves to faces yeah um and then also avatar was mentioned mm-hmm. so i and maybe this is a track, there's, there's a dead end, but <laughs> you can cut it out. I feel, I mean, and I know I'm supposed to, but I feel real uncomfortable with the aliens attaching themselves to people's faces. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, and becoming parasites. And, and then there's something, I feel like there's something a little assaulty about it mm-hmm. not a, I, not a little again not not a little, little. i mean it is an, an assault of a human but there's something a little bit sexual assaulty yes to me no in there. no not a little yeah. not a not a little and so <laughs> then you add then add avatar mm-hmm. and the tentacle rapiness mm-hmm. there you're gonna have to help <sighs> what me. is james cameron's problem well okay this was all developed for alien before james cameron but that I am I haven't seen Avatar since it was in the theater, so refresh my memory with the tentacle thing. And it's it's been a long time, but like the ropes of the people and the ropes of the animals they ride 
have to join, right? And it, oh, it, there's yeah. a, there's a consent. There's a very strong sort of consent piece there, right? That yeah. they resist and they resist, but then once they join, then you can fly, or I don't even know. And then I feel like, the, and it's been a long time for me too. But I was so put off by it. Um, I was put off by then, so much. Yeah, in that movie. I really don't like that movie. Yeah. But then when the when the two blue people then actually do bang it out, there's also tentacle things around. And I, so I, I guess I shouldn't. I thought you were more familiar with it, so that you could help me. Not not like I thought you were more familiar with it, but I didn't know if that so. I didn't know if that was a through line for James Cameron or not. No, I, well, it may, it may be, but as, as Nick was saying, this, this is, he did not direct the first movie of alien, nor did he have anything to do with the design of, of, the, of the, either the face hugger or the xenomorph that was all in the, in the first movie. Yeah. The only thing that he designed, he designed a lot of the ships and he designed, he did a full design for the alien queen. That was mm. almost, I think that was a hundred percent him. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but and he said in an interview one time he took this job partially to make cool designs was he he was excited about the opportunity to getting to design spaceships and getting to design uh, an alien on some level. So he got to design the alien queen and he got to design all of the the cool military gear. And that would be really fun. Yeah, yeah. Totally. that would be a reason to take a job. Um, Isla, can you tell us what you think of Ripley as a character? Yes, but can I make one comment right before then? Because it's it's the next thing in my notes is all in caps. Close your mouths. Because they, when they're all going through the tunnel areas, mm-hmm. the caves, uh-huh. and it's just dripping <laughs> with like alien goo water. And everyone, I ca- everyone, all of the characters are guilty of walking around with their mouths open. And they don't even, <laughs> just, they even have a line uh, where they're like, what is it? I don't know. So. I don't know, but let me just stick my tongue out like it's snowing. It was gross. <laughs> <sighs> okay, what do I think of Ripley? So I knew she was, I have not seen the movies, mm-hmm. but I have, of course, heard of her. And so I had I had a little bit sort of built up in my mind. As I mentioned once, I think she's compelling from the get-go. And I, I do I do really appreciate her thoughtfulness and like I said, the the aptitude for learning things and, and figuring things out. Um, it's interesting that the, in the first movie, she was all about the protocol. And because I, I think this is different. I think she learned from that experience to do this. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you're right. You know, it's not until she truly takes over that they can, you know, beat the thing. So, yeah, I mean, she's great. I don't know what you want me to say. She's she's great, but I don't ever want to see her again. <laughs> I get your feelings about this movie. A hundred percent. That is <laughs> that is coming through. I just wondered what you thought of her. Uh, I wondered how that extended to her, sort of her portrayal. So going to be portrayal what, and what they do with her as with her as a character. Yeah, I think it is a, a great juxtaposition between the broy military and her um, her experience. Mm-hmm. Right. Because she has more experience with this right. than they do. And um, how she, you know, uh, sort of advocates for herself and eventually turns turns the tide. But it ta- I mean, it takes a long time. I just spent a lot of time watching sleeveless people with their mouths open shooting at stuff. And that part was not compelling to me. Nick, what did Ripley mean to you watching this movie as a as a kid? 
This is an interesting yeah, thing be that we'll come back to, I think, when we get to a later part in the podcast. But I talked about this with uh, with Terminator or I've talked about this with people about Terminator as well. I saw them at such a young age that it didn't occur to me that it was anything different. Mm-hmm. I just thought this is the main character of our movie. It did not. And whether it was this or whether it was Terminator or um, there were a couple other movies around that same time where there were similar things. Actually, Conan the Barbarian, his um, his uh, Sandal Bergman in Conan the Barbarian is another similar character where it's like I'm not focused on the idea that it's a, a woman at that age. I'm just focused on the idea of like, here is a cool character. Mm-hmm. Here is a here is a character who I trust. Here's a character who I think can do everything that they need to be doing. Here's a character in a bad situation. Um, only later did I watch it and realize, oh, this was not the norm at the time. Right. Uh, it was as I got older, I started to realize, oh, that's one of the things that um, Cameron was a big part of at that time, much like Joss Whedon was later on that, like, you know, Buffy was kind of rare when it came out. Um, and so there's a lot there that I I just saw her as a really cool, capable character and not as anything really more than that. I think it meant more to me as I got older because I saw those things when I was um, a young person. So that means when I grew up and I started writing screenplays, I don't write screenplays for men. I don't write males in my lead characters. Uh, It's just because those weren't the movies that I grew up on. And I don't have a lot of interest in them now either. Um, And it's one of my reasons for the exhaustion with a lot of modern cinema is, you know, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, maybe someday we'll get a woman superhero. It's like, really? Why is it taking this long? And it's probably why Black Widow is my favorite superhero character in that universe is because I find her compelling and I find her to be, well, there's a lot of reasons for that that we could talk about later. But, um, But so for me, it wasn't, like a big revelation. It was just, this is a really cool action thriller with this really cool character in the lead. And I made some notes about Sigourney Weaver because this was the first time I'd ever watched it just specifically with a laser focus on her. And I, it, I'm going to read this note as I wrote it. Cause I was kind of writing it as, um, as I was watching. So I wrote Sigourney Weaver is like, I don't even know if great is a good enough word to use here. <laughs> This is the first time I've watched it laser focused on her performance. And it's a very sophisticated performance. Yeah, yeah. The way she plays Ripley in every scene is truthful to her original character, as well as truthful to this character and truthful to being a leader. If you pay attention to when she's projecting fear, actual fear for her own safety, you'll see that's when she's in a subordinate role. Like when she's entering the colony for the first time with the Marines, when she assumes command in a marvelous series of scenes, she relaxes, she becomes stern and less afraid. And it's a very Cameron personality. In fact, I could hear James Cameron saying every single one of her snarky comments. She feels like a, (laughs) she feels like a bit of a conduit for him. So that's my note that I wrote. And I still stand by that, that like, if you watch her performance as she's walking into that colony, which I wasn't, it's not something that you would normally be watching because you're trying to look into the corners right, right. and and just sort of see as Apone is telling everybody, check those corners, check those corners. And it's a big, scary thing. So, you know, but watching her tenseness in those sequences is really impressive to me. 
as a director and a person who's worked with actors and tried to find that reason of like, why, why is this character scared here? What's at the root of it? And she just plays it so well that I was kind of like, it was a new revelation I had watching this last night. I think sophisticated performance is such a a great way to say that. I wish I had heard that note before I watched it. I'm also wondering, like, this is when, um, so we did this, Tobin and I did this film for Crash Course Film Criticism, and we watched, a bunch of us in the office got together and watched it, and those of us that had seen it at a young age were still just completely wrapped up in it, and then the others were just sort of, as you are doing, kind of picking it apart for logical fallacies here and there. You mean I'm not the only one? No, no, no. no. Oh, I feel so much better. (laughs) I mean, I'm glad to, I would stand, I would, I stand by every comment I've made, but, but yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad I'm not alone. Hello out there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I've been wanting to say that for a while. I just, it's, so, but this isn't a thing. I'm pretty good at detecting my own nostalgia and, and figuring out where things fall apart. we recently did a podcast about Highlander and I watched my nostalgia (laughs) fall completely on its face and um, and just disintegrate. It's it's head got cut off. (laughs) Basically. Yeah. Um, so it, so I don't feel like it's nostalgia here, but I can't figure out what it is. I mean, before the, I'm, I'm trying to recall now, it might be before we were recording when we were sort of pre-chatting a little bit, you were both nerding out a little bit about the more technical side of, you know, it's beautiful for this or the the way that, you know what I mean? Like, so I think maybe part of it is that I'm in this case, not super interested in that. <laughs> and so maybe it, some of the parts that hold better together are when you place it in its historical context of filmmaking, it stands out for other merits. Would that be true? Um, I, I definitely think there is something to that, but also at the same time, I still find it an incredibly tense experience to watch this film. Like I, I still feel the roller coaster. So it's not just me going, Oh, look at that shot and look at how this cuts together. And and there is that element to it that as I've learned more about film, this is a, a particularly impressive movie that in my opinion, a second time filmmaker has no business making, but he (laughs) did. And I'm so I so I don't know. Maybe it's just a weird magical mixture of of all kinds of things. Tobin, I don't know. Do you have an opinion on this? I you and I have talked a little bit about nostalgia, but like what what's your feeling on this? I really don't feel like nostalgia is clouding my enjoyment of and reverence is too strong a word, but my love for this movie. I because when I'm talking about the way the the shots are cut together, the way the tension is being uh, ratcheted up in that that final sequence where the bottom keeps dropping out underneath her <laughs> as things seem to get worse and mm-hmm. worse and worse. Yeah. Is what I'm asking myself when I'm noticing that is why is this so gripping? Like this has me just by the throat. And it's it's it i think it's i think it's two things one of it has to do with just he's just at this point he's in his career this i think in a lot of his other movies i think this is true he has a real command of of how action cuts together yes, in a way in a way that makes it feel um he, he's he's aware of where the camera needs to be at at every moment for for us to sort of keep track of who's winning, who's losing, who's up, who's down, um, how close they are to sort of losing losing it all, and and when the moments need to need to slow down a little bit, uh, or we need to pause pause the action and sort of experience it. And I think that the other thing is that he is so uh, he 
pivots the, this whole movie off of her as a character. We are experiencing so much of this movie through her experience of it. And he's so smart about it. Something that we're going to talk about on another movie that I think Isla's probably not going to enjoy the experience of watching when we do Silence of the Lambs. That does a similar oh. thing. Where oh, I've, I've seen Silence of the well, Lambs. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I, look, everything's out the window now. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where we're going to land. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not making, how about this? I'm not making assumptions about anybody's experience of, of a movie. But that's another movie that takes a, 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 a genre that's predominantly male dominated in its lead hero. And then not only is the movie about them, but the movie refracts the whole experience of the genre through this person who does not usually get to star in that genre. And I think that there are real parallels just in the way that both characters are shot, um, where we're often looking up at them as they are, as they're experiencing this and we're sort of pivoting off their point of view, which is why to me, I never take the broy militaristic stuff seriously because she doesn't really take it seriously. And I, th- and I think that because I'm so with her, I'm like looking down on it the way she seems to be too. And I think that it gets to, I, so since I didn't see this movie, when like at the first one, when the first one came out, Tom Skerritt was top build. Yes. And he was the biggest star in the movie, right? We're going into it. Or at least he was the, he was the hunkiest star, right? Like he's the one that would normally survive the ordeal. And yeah, right. And then, yeah. and then the movie goes along and so one by one, everybody's killed and you're left with Sigourney Weaver who like, what a crazy thing that must've been watching that first movie for the first time. Not crazy is not the right word. What a new thing. Yeah. What, to, how innovative, to, how innovative to, to experience. And, and so I come to this movie knowing she's going to be sort of the main character when I'm in high school or whatever it is the first time that I see this movie. But, but, but at that point, what I've seen are all these other action movies that don't have a female lead character. Yeah. And so this was a revelation to me. This, the, her character in this movie and the way that, that he uh, sort of honors her experience as a person going through this thing. And it changes, I think, the way that the story goes. The fact that she, she, does, she isn't one of the military guys, right? Like this isn't, you know, commando. Mm-hmm. This isn't, you know, like this isn't a, a predator. This isn't a movie where the hero is a gun-toting, like I'm going to kill everything motherfucker this is the one where this is a person saying i don't want to come here i don't want to be here but if we're going to survive this is how we're going to do it and if you listen to me maybe you'll make it through and 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 just and i don't know i i find i found that so compelling then and i still find that compelling now and i think that's why i don't it's not nostalgia as much for me as sort of oh my god look what look what this whole new thing opened up for me when i saw this movie of, of what you could do with this kind of movie and with this kind of character yeah, I, I, I would agree with that because like nostalgia is a specific feeling and like I can have that while watching The Goonies, even though The Goonies is not a very well-made movie and I can see that and I can look at it and go, yeah, I understand why I enjoyed this and I under, and I get the feels. I still have the feels when um, Corey Feldman shows up like like I that is a familiar feeling and that is not this. This is I know you said it's not reverence, but there is a level of that to watching this film now having I don't know, seen so many crap sci-fi movies, especially so many crap alien movies <laughs> to look at, to look at this movie and, and just see so much that's compelling about it to me. And then so then so much about the craft itself. So. Okay. Well, the, the last little bit of this has made me appreciate the film a little bit more. So thank you. You're welcome. So Gordy Weaver, we should remember was nominated for a best actress for a leading actress Oscar for mm-hmm. this movie. And, 
Yeah. That does not happen. <laughs> no, no. And I think her performance is, as Nick, you said it just, you said it so well. She, and she, and she has been very public in the course of the franchise of sort of, of taking ownership of Ripley. Yeah. You know, saying, no, we're not going to do this. No, she wouldn't do this. It, it, and mm-hmm. she's taken some flack for that. There was a time when she was thought of as quote unquote difficult, which is the thing that, that actresses often get tagged with when they're standing up for themselves. And to this day, this happens. But I think that there, there's an unapologetic quality to this performance that I think echoes the way she treats this character that, that means something to me anyway. Iceland, you will be, um, I would just like to point out that another Favorite actors of yours won the year that she was that Sigourney Weaver was nominated for. I don't know who. Can you guess? Can you guess who it is? 1986. No, I can't. I'm sorry. 87 was the year of the Oscars. It was Marley Matlin for Children of a Lesser God. Yes. You know that I just planned a Children of a Lesser God party with <laughs> a friend of mine who is also. Um, and that, I mean, yeah, we can't, we're not going to get into it, but there's backstory on that that is yeah, right, right. fascinating. Yeah, very much, yeah. Um so now that there's been reverence. <laughs> <laughs> I wanna say I wanna say one thing before we move on. We haven't talked much about Gail Ann Hurd. Oh yes. And that she plays an extraordinarily important role for this movie. And she kind of faced Ripley's dilemma in her role as producer. So when she first arrives on set, people start asking her like, okay, well, who's producing? And she said, I'm producing. And they (laughs) said, no, you're the director's wife. Who's producing? (laughs) To which she had to basically say, okay, I'll show you who's producing. And then she just muscled through it. But then there was the problem where the first AD led a mutiny against Cameron because Cameron is a Cameron is difficult. And and is this this is in England, right? Yes. Uh, so where the, this film was shot in England and they were not used to working on, you know, a 12 to 14 hour days. That's just not right, how right. it's done there. And he was extraordinarily difficult to work with and demanded everybody work as hard as he was working. And so the first AD led a revolt and got the entire crew to kind of walk off set. And then it was Gail and Heard who put that revolt down, who basically got everybody back together, everybody in the same room. I think they let that first AD go, hired another first AD, got a different cinematographer, but she did some work against some odds that were really difficult. Like I cannot imagine having to go through that. And she did. And she has gone and persevered in the world of Hollywood um, off of that legacy. Awesome. I like, thank you. I like that story. Uh, if you have not listened to it, I, har- I heartily recommend listening to the commentary on the DVD or Blu-ray because she talks about it in great detail. And it's it's really a, a great story. And Aislinn, we're not asking you to do that. No, no, no. no. I was just going to say, I would love it if someone would find me that clip. and not- <laughs> Our listeners. Our yes. listeners will, will. Yeah. So now that there's been reverence, can there be irreverence and can we yes. play my game? Let's okay. play a game. You want to play a game? Oh, dear Lord, Jesus, this ain't happening, man. This can't be happening, man. This isn't happening. I understand that the version I watched had even more Hudson than the theatrical version. Yes. And so are you, and just, it, it's got to be a sentence. Do you forgive the bad dialogue because some of it was cut? What what bad dialogue are you talking about exactly? Oh my goodness. He has terrible lines. Are you kidding me? Are you being funny? I can't tell. No, actually, I, I absolutely love 
his character in here because I feel like he is the voice of of the audience. He's he's our window into this, especially when he's like, you know, well, what the fuck are we supposed to do now, man? Like, hey, maybe I've been keeping up on current events, but we just got our asses kicked, pal. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I I hear I hear some of that, but like, think about the drop scene and his outrageous monologue about how they're badasses or in when we first meet him and he's challenging well he's not challenging it but he's commenting on uh, what femininity should be and you know what i mean like he's he's a caveman right he is whether he's supposed to be or not right right? so if that serves (laughs) the purpose of the film great but he's a caveman and right uh, yeah, he's he no he he's okay. not supposed to be the paragon of intelligence and uh, and and uh, uh, and right thinking and refinement and yeah yeah no he's he he is supposed to be a caveman but he's also t- supposed to be the person that we can look at and go well yeah you're not wrong about that in this situation it we're all fucked okay all right I'll take that but his <laughs> the way that he comments on things is a little extra right. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, what are we going to do now? Yeah, but okay, that, good. I he, just want to make sure we all agree. Pouring, he is pouring some extra sauce on that. Yes. Yes. Okay, okay yeah. great. So speaking of that sauce, <laughs> this is called, this game is called WWHS. What would Hudson say? <laughs> I have five scenarios in which um, you all must come up with the most Hudson line for a given situation. I love this. Okay. okay. <laughs> all right. And now, because you made me watch this two-hour and 34-minute film, I get to judge each one, and thus, I will determine the winner. And if it takes too long, we can just do three. Okay. Okay. I would like one line from a a commencement address Hudson gives to his alma mater. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay. Um, Um... Ah, I always wanted to be Hudson when I was a kid because I felt like he had the best lines. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, 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 I was just going to say you two should be good at this because you're both writers, but I want to take that back. <laughs> oh, okay. My fellow assholes, the future is yours. No, I can't say that. It would just be terrible. I can't. I, I can't be Hudson. Tobin, you go first. Uh, how about... Um... God, at his alma mater. Okay, so maybe it's like from his from military school. Do you suppose he went to some kind of boot campy thing? Sure. Sure. Uh, okay, so um, I suppose at the end it would be just something kind of like, uh, well, let's go kick some ass, man. Yes. Right? I agree. I like, I appreciate how you both included ass. Um, I'm going to have to give that point to Tobin. Woo-hoo. Yes. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on. Um. Perfect. (laughs) All right. What would Hudson say as he arrived to a corporate sexual harassment training? Does he know that's what he's coming to do? Oh, that's a great question. Perhaps it's a surprise. Sure. However, however you feel it. Because I don't think you could get him to it unless unless you gaslit him into it. Yeah, I'm going to say I don't think he knows what he's going to. Mm -hmm. And I think he's going to walk in arms wide open and just go, ladies. And that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, okay so i'm gonna say he walks in and says um where's the beer man yeah i'm gonna give that one to nick yeah that's good that's fair i assume there was probably something cruder after the ladies oh probably um, or maybe and maybe that was just physical absolutely a little thrusty thrust right 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 (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. Um, what would Hudson say? Arriving at Burning Man. Oh, God. Okay. I think I got this. Okay. He would say, Yo, where are my drinks at? That's all I got. That's good. That's good. That's good. Um, uh, okay. Arriving at Burning Man. Um, uh, okay. I don't know. Maybe he says something like, Light me up, man. <laughs> I don't know. See, I okay. I think that was a tie. So Ooh. we're gonna do one more okay. to break okay. the tie. I'm also not entirely sure what Burning Man is. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I'm assuming it's a music festival. Yes, and if you ask anyone who is gone, they would say, "And so much more." Oh, okay. Um, finally, to break the tie, what would Hudson say when given the invitation to a gender reveal party by a relative? Ooh. Now, when you say gender reveal party, mm-hmm. what do you mean? So that's when um, the couple is expecting a child and they have a party while while the uh, expecting mother is still pregnant where they reveal it. So they ha- ordered a cake and the inside of the cake is either pink or mm-hmm. blue mm-hmm. Okay. or um, you pop a balloon and it says it's some it's it's become a trend. Okay. okay so in my imagination, he's saying this to the father great are you fucking serious man (laughs) (laughs) finally hudson's the voice of reason okay i don't know maybe he just says something like uh i just want some cake man yeah i'm gonna give that one to nick nick has won the game i win bravo nick (laughs) woohoo so tobin i think is zero for two on games on this podcast i'm not doing well I mean, some of the games do not have winners. Right, right. Um, some of them do. It depends on my mood. <laughs> Sometimes they have losers. <laughs> no, I love the idea of just a whole what would Hudson say thread. <laughs> yeah, ha- hashtag WWHS. Yes. Yeah, and between, Tweet it. between now and Tweet at it. Yeah, exactly. Between now and when the when this episode comes out, we will have all we will have been able to think of some good some good ones. There you go. Okay, you'll have to give me a reminder on my Twitter. Yeah, yeah. That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. What the fuck are we gonna do now? What are we gonna do? All right. So as we get to the end of this, the podcast can be as long as the movie, folks. We ask the question, is this movie a step forward? or a step back for fearless women in front of and behind the camera. Nick, what do you think? I think this is definitely a, this is definitely progressive. This, and it's progressive for a lot of reasons that are in front of the camera and a lot of reasons that are going on behind the camera. Like she, uh, Sigourney Weaver, not only just having a great part where she was, you know, strong, capable, smart, not only in control, but takes control of a situation. And then the movie itself, having the people around her for the most part, model some decent behavior and reactions to this. Like nobody complains about her being in charge except slimy Burke. And he's not even doing it because she's a woman. He's doing it because he wants to make money. Everybody understands the chain of command once she's taken the reins and never once is Ripley condescended because of her sex or gender. So I think in front of the camera, there's a lot going on here. I also like the idea that this is about basically this comes down to dueling mothers that are both protective of their children. One of its one of them is found children, of course, but like it's it that is the end conflict. And so I really like that. And she's not the 
the only competent, smart, strong woman in this movie. You have Newt. I mean, she's a girl, but still, you have Newt, you have Vasquez, and you have the person that nobody ever talks about, mm-hmm. but is cool and calm under pressure. And that's Pharaoh, the pilot, who like mm-hmm. has her shit together mm-hmm. um, throughout this whole movie. And is like when I was a kid, I always liked background characters and she was my favorite character when I was a kid, I loved Pharaoh because I just thought, man, she is just cool and collected and ready to go no matter what. And I loved it. But also Sigourney Weaver played into the studios, what I will call a quote unquote mistake by not signing her on to the sequel before they had the script. And she was able to negotiate a million dollar payday, which I believe is the first million dollar payday a woman had received in Hollywood, I think. And like that in itself, like she stuck to her guns and she got what she deserved. She was worth every penny. So I think this is definitely progressive. Tobin, what do you think? Yeah, no surprise. I'm going to agree with Nick. And I think that for all the reasons he said, and also I think for young filmmakers like I was who saw this movie and saw a template for how to have a different kind of character at the head of this kind of a movie, of an action blockbuster uh, um, sort of extravaganza movie, that it was, you know, it changes, it changed the way that I thought about female characters. And I and and I think that this is a thing that we need. This is a thing that that needs to that needs to be seen. And for for the faults of the movie and for and for the um, I don't think it's a perfect movie. And I and certainly not if you watch the the Island's longer cut of the movie. And I think that that Cameron does fetishize is exactly the right word. It's a word I couldn't think of before uh, that Nick came up with. He fetishizes the mil- military equipment and the military stuff in a way that feels like it, it doesn't seem to mesh with some of the other more sophisticated things going on in the movie, whether he intended them or however much he intended them or not, and whether that's Gail and Hurd's contribution or not. But I think that on balance for what this has done for actors, for actresses, um, and for young filmmakers of my generation, uh, I think that this is ultimately a step forward. Aislinn, how about you? You know, I, I I hear what you'll have to say, and I agree with some of it. I mean, I agree with everything you've said in this section, but in terms of our entire conversation, I agree with some of it. <laughs> and so I like, yes, I'm not going to deny any of, um, you know, Sigourney Weaver's either behind the scenes or in the scenes. The I'm trying not to use the word progress because it's in the in the prompt, <laughs> but okay, it's OK. <laughs> absolutely. In front of the camera, behind the scenes, she has uh, made a mark on culture here that I, I think is for the positive. That being said, <laughs> God, I hate this movie. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> of so course. Much. I can totally be on board with that. It made me ill. <laughs> oh, just wait. We got more to come. <laughs> Ooh, so speaking of what's to come, tell us about it. We are going to do Catherine Bigelow's Zero Dark Thirty in two weeks. It'll come out on April 17th. First female director to win an Academy Award for Best Director. And uh, not for this movie, uh, but I think because this movie has such a pivotal female performance at the center of it, this is the one that we've chosen mm-hmm. to do. As, as hard to watch as this may be. So if you haven't seen Catherine Bigelow's Zero Dark Thirty, I think you should take a look at it again uh, if you if you can in the next two weeks and then uh, circle back and hear, hear our discussion. And it's a bit, I mean, it's a stretch, but I'm going to say it anyway. I, I It's a couplet 
this episode and that episode in that when she won the Best Director Oscar, she beat James Cameron. Oh, and bizarrely, deservedly so. Oh, absolutely. Because he was nominated Avatar. What the hell? Right. And weren't they also previously <laughs> married? Yeah, they were. Yes. Sure. Um, so they, uh, they, had, they had an amicable split, though. They weren't. Yeah. And, and he had championed her career yeah. at times in her career when she was not getting hired for jobs. He he was very helpful in getting her hired jobs, not to excuse any other behavior or whatever, but just that, that, it, that it wasn't a feud the way it was sort of made out to be. But I think you're right. We're sort of pairing these. And I would like to also put down a marker that someday down the road, once we get past sort of season one, I'd like to have Nick back to talk about another Catherine Bigelow movie called Blue Steel. Yes. With Jamie Lee Curtis, which is uh, which is a, a movie I cannot wait to revisit for this podcast. Uh, Podcast, and I think Islam will be a much um, different watch for you than this movie was. I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, now that we've now that I've spent a total of four and a half hours <laughs> this week on Aliens, if you want to tell me how wrong I am, please go ahead and find me on uh, on Twitter. Sometimes I know how to use it. Sometimes I don't. I'm at Sassy Nerd MT on Twitter. And yeah, please tell me. Go ahead. Tell me I'm wrong. Nick, where can people find you? Well, if you want to hear me talk about really bad movies, you can find my podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher. And I think we're on Google Play now. Uh, And it is called Real Bad, R-E-E-L-B-A-D. And uh, we talk about bad movies and why they want to hurt us sometimes. And uh, if you just want to hear, see me talk about stream of consciousness stuff and my day at work, you can find me at NG Jenkins uh, on Twitter. And that's probably the best place to find me. And sometimes there's adorable dog pictures. Oh, there's yes. corgi, corgi stuff. Yeah, yeah. Corgi Absolutely. love. <laughs> I heart my corgi. We all heart your corgi. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And you can find me on Twitter at Tobin Addington. And you can find us at Facebook.com slash the Contenders Pod or on Twitter at Contenders underscore pod. Get in touch. Tell us what movies you'd like to see us do in the future. Tell us what you thought of Aliens. Tell us why you didn't watch it or tell us why you love it to your core. We here at the Contenders are proud members of the Cage Club Podcast Network for all those great shows, including now Real Bad. Go listen because Real Bad is real good. Uh, go to cageclub.me or Facebook.com slash cage club and find them at cage club pod on twitter game over man (laughs) you can find all the cage club network shows on itunes google play stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts while you're there please subscribe rate and review tell us how you feel about it when tobin and i fight (laughs) maybe you like it Maybe it makes you sad. Who knows? It's okay. We'll make up later. Those reviews really help us uh, spread the word and and get more people excited about the contenders. And if you leave us a comment, we might even read it on an upcoming show. I'm Aislinn Addington. I'm Nick Jenkins. I'm Tobin Addington, and we'll see you next time on The Contenders. If we're still speaking. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding, Mom. And you can find me at, sorry, you want to throw it to me? Go ahead. No, I was, throw it to yourself. (laughs) The world's best game of catch. (laughs) There's the outtake right there. Um, You can find me at Twitter, uh, sorry, Twitter. (laughs) I guess you can't, technically.